did. They were jamming up there, having a good time. Um, I do want to say, by the way, for those of you that were able to be there yesterday, I don't know how many we had. We had to have at least 30, maybe more. We ate a lot of wraps, Publix wraps and sandwiches. It was really great. A lot of cookies, but we did so much. Like 80 or 90% of the painting was probably for the inside was done and a bunch of other stuff we got done in the auditorium. It's really coming together. And uh, somebody asked me this week if I saw, when it came to this remodeling project, if I saw a light at the end of the tunnel. And I told them, well, it's a strobe light. It's moving around a lot, and it's changing colors, and it keeps sending me invoices. But <laughs> it is a light. <clears throat> um, we're starting, we're continuing with our series on Revelation. This week, I'm calling it uh, Our First Love. It's week four. I'm just going to jump right into it. For nearly six years now, it'll be six years in September, believe it or not, Grace Life has lived in a comedy club, an office building, and a strip mall. And because of that, we were forced to love people before a building or an organization. We were forced to learn how to do church in a way that was mobile, organic, biblical, and generous. In this way, our humble beginnings have been a huge blessing for Grace Life. They helped us find, identify, and maintain our first love from day one. That first love has been to relentlessly serve hurting people in our community through truth, generosity, and love in hard times. Now, with all the exciting things that are happening with Lockwood Ridge campus and all those things, there's a challenge for us at Grace Life. As we discuss carpet and paint and chairs and cameras and life and Grace Life kids and family ministry in the new building. And yes, even parking lots. By the way, you know parking lots is probably the most expensive part of the whole thing I'm learning? Unbelievable, okay? But all these other things that we're talking about, my question for you is, as we get ready for this new era, could we be tempted to lose our first love? Let's go further. If in five years, Grace Life, for some reason, closed its doors, would our community even feel the impact? Would anyone even notice? I hope they would. So this week in Revelation, we're starting a section that contains personalized letters for each of the representative seven churches that we've talked about, the seven golden lampstands and the seven stars in his hands. Each letter lists the things each church did well, and each letter lists things each church did that they failed in and all of which are very very relevant to every church, including ourselves. So let's go to the passage this week. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel, remember the angels, the seven angels in the hands. He's talking to one of those churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. If you haven't heard that yet, you need to go back and listen to the first three messages in this series. I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance. You remember patient endurance from a couple weeks ago. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Oh, that's good. Let's just close in prayer, right? (laughs) No, he says, but I have this against you. 
Jesus is talking to the church. Like, you know, if Jesus ever said, Grace Life, you've done good, good stuff, but I have this against you, wouldn't that be kind of scary? He goes, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you first had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, when you first became a church. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Yikes. <laughs> Unless you repent. Yet you have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I'll tell you who they are in a moment, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <clears throat> I want to give you a little bit of information about Ephesus and this church. I've called it Ephesus Community Church, right? That's kind of what we would call it if it was like a 21st century church. <clears throat> First of all, a little bit about Ephesus itself. Of the seven churches that are represented in the book of Revelation, Ephesus ge geographically would have been the closest to Patmos, where John was in prison. So they would have been the first to receive the book of Revelation once it was sent. They would have been responsible, and this is how it would have worked, that church, Ephesus, would have been responsible for its first reading and its first teaching. Pretty big responsibility, right? They would also be responsible for carefully copying the letter and then sending it on to the other churches. So you can see Ephesus would have been a very important church. It would, have been had, it would have had to have been a church that was reliable with its scribes and its pastors and its teachers. And the church was in Ephesus, which at the time was the main commercial port city in all the region. Its ruins today are actually a very huge attraction in modern-day Turkey. I've had the privilege of being there and seeing it in, at firsthand. It's interesting because at this time it was a port city, but now you can see the ruins and you look out. The, the ocean is like two miles away or three miles away. Sediment has come in and filled it in, and it's not a port city anymore. But because Ephesus at the time was the most powerful commerce hub in the region, the church there was very influential. And for reasons well-earned, the church in Ephesus had money, influence, prestige, and reputation among the seven churches. I mean, think about it. If this is the first church to have ever handled the book of Revelation after it was written by John, boy, they better do a good job. Ephesus, the city, was also a huge cultural melting pot full of pagan rituals and different types of cultures. It is, in fact, the location of one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis. The city was full of pagan temples just like that, known for their pagan, and if you'll excuse me, they were widely known for their pagan orgy-like rituals and ceremonies, combined with feasts where they would offer meat to false gods and idols. But the church there in Ephesus was definitely biblical one of the core values we ascribe to. So while Ephesus was this mecca for false teachers, that church stood tall, courageously, effectively defending the truth against any false teachers who tried to corrupt it. In the first and last parts of this short letter, Jesus affirms their stand against the false teachers and people who called themselves apostles but proved not to be. And while other churches, and we've read about them in Corinth and other places, while other churches had given in to try to fit into a pagan culture around them, Ephesus was faithful with patient endurance, Jesus says. 
You know, churches unfortunately fail. A lot of churches do this today. They bow to pressure. And they allow one political ideology or another to be mingled in somehow with the gospel. Well, you can't be a Republican and not be a Christian, or you can't be a Democrat and be a Christian, and they try to mingle these political ideologies in with the gospel. Others try to compromise and stand against unbiblical lifestyles. They decide just to let them go, just to gain society's approval at the cost of obedience to Jesus. Churches face this struggle all the time. Ephesus stood tall. In fact, for centuries, Ephesus was known as the driving force globally for the preservation of apostolic teaching. They didn't let politics, culture, or anything impact the message of truth. They loved the gospel. They loved the scriptures. They loved the apostolic teaching. Now, Jesus does name a certain group of people here, and he names them later in another letter to another church. He calls them the Nicolaitans. So Jesus commends the Ephesians for despising and standing up to the Nicolaitans who destroyed people with their false teaching. It's a great word. Check this out. Nicolaitans. Comes from the Greek word Nicolaitus. It's made out of two words. The first word is Nico or Nike. We get that word from our sneakers. It means to conquer. And then the next word it's made up of is called uh, Laos, which is Greek for people. So the, words, the word Nicolaitans means conquerors of people. This is Jesus naming all those false teachers we have been learning about in our study of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, of 1st and 2nd Peter, and Paul's letters that we've done. They've all talked about these false teachers. Jesus finally names them. Yeah, all those guys, they're Nicolaitans. Here's what's really interesting about the word. It is actually a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word, the word Balaam. Sound familiar? An Old Testament reference. You know what Balaam means in Hebrew? Destroyer of people. Isn't that awesome? So Balaam, just so you guys know that maybe that aren't familiar, Balaam was a false prophet in the Old Testament who sought to destroy Israel from within by corrupting its sexual moral values. Nicolaitans, are doing with their false teaching, if you remember our study from 1st and 2nd Peter, exactly what Balaam tried to do, corrupt God's people by promoting participation in pagan activities and rituals. And these pagan rituals included substance abuse, immoral behavior, and branding anything sensual as worship and celebrating who you're made to be. So that's what Jesus calls these people. It's the same ones we've been talking about all throughout the New Testament. So that's the historical side of this. That word is pretty cool, isn't it? All right, let's move on. We'll more, to, more on that word later. I'm going to talk about the theological side of this passage. What does Jesus do and what does he say and why does he say it? I've entitled this section, Losing Their First Love. We see here in the church of Ephesus a failing priesthood. Remember when Jesus told Peter this particular verse I'm getting ready to show you, and he said it not just for Peter to hear, but he said it in the earshot of all the disciples. This, what I'm about to show you, was a foundational teaching for Jesus. Remember, he talked to him three times. Love my, you know, if you, if you love me, feed my sheep. And this is the third time. He said to him the third time, Jesus talking to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's another verse I want to show you in Matthew 22, just to understand what this love thing, what Jesus was talking about. In Matthew, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Despite their love for truth, the Ephesians had left their first love, the things they did at the very beginning. They had forgotten the greatest commandment. Jesus said, look, you've been faithful to stand against false teachers who destroy people's lives, but you've lost your balance. You have allowed the honorable love of protecting truth to turn you into critical, judgmental, unloving people. You have become a church that loves theology and knowledge more than you love humble service to those around you. And yes, they courageously stood against the Nicolaitans. This wasn't easy, by the way. For them, it came at a significant cost, persecution, shunning, sometimes even put to death. It wasn't easy to do, but they did stand against them. But in the process of standing for truth, they forgot about the royal priesthood. They failed in the first aspect of it, which is proclamation. Then Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. He warns them, if you don't repent and go back to the things you used to do at the beginning when you first started as a church, if you don't repent and turn back to that first love, I will remove your lampstand. Imagine being one of the elders or one of the pastors in the church in Ephesus reading this letter directly from Jesus. Yikes. We need to have a meeting, guys, quick. I'll send you the Zoom link. Everybody, 6 o'clock, let's go. Jesus says, if you don't get back to the priesthood, back to proclaiming and loving others, I will remove your lampstand from among the seven. Okay, this is a troubling passage at first glance, isn't it? I thought we believed that you can't ever lose your salvation. Well, I was losing the lampstand. See, here's what happened. The church in Ephesus had started to forget how to be a light on a hill. Remember what Jesus called the church that? You are a light on a hill. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. This wasn't the first time that Jesus taught the importance of loving people, as you see. Wait a minute. Doesn't Jesus hold the stars in his hands? Remember I showed you how that refers back to John. He says, I hold those who come to me in my hands and no one can take them out of my hand. Doesn't he hold the seven stars in his hands? Isn't he among the seven lampstands? Didn't he say he'll never leave us or forsake us, but now he's threatening to take our lampstand away? What Jesus is saying is he would remove Ephesus' status as one of the seven churches and replace them with another one. It doesn't mean that the individuals within the church, the people, lose their faith or their salvation or their connection to Jesus. It is a warning to the church as an organization, as an institution. If you don't shine like a light on a hill, if you don't go back to your first love, the things you did at first, loving one another relentlessly, your lampstand will be removed and I will give it to a new group of people. It is the same warning that God gave Israel time and again. It's a corporate warning, not an individual or personal one. And it has corporate consequences, not individual. Now, obviously, if they lose their lampstand and the church of Ephesus dissipates, people will be impacted, but their connection to Jesus is not interrupted. 
Fast forward to today, and that is exactly what happened. A few centuries later, after 500 years of being such an important part of the early church, this crucial, important lampstand in Ephesus disappeared. There's one more beautiful irony in this passage that I cannot go, go past without mentioning. It's sort of related, but I thought about, should I mention it? And I said, yeah, I got it. This is a beautiful irony. See if you can pick up on the intentional play on the words that Jesus gives in this passage. You ready? After all this warning about the Nicolaitans, the conqueror of people, and you hate them and I hate them, but you've lost your first love, here's what he says. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is back to what we talked about last week. My sheep hear me and follow me. So if you hear him, it's because you're one of his sheep. You get that, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at the second part of this verse. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the, in the midst of the paradise of God. You know that word conquers? It is the word nikao. The same exact word. Jesus says, I hate the Nicolaitans, the Nike, Loaus. But if we, Nikao, conquer by keeping our first love, you will be rewarded. So you see what's happening. He's, he's tying it all together at the very end, using a, a beautiful literary play on words. All right, look at the personal. What about us? What are we supposed to do with this letter to Ephesus? I call this Grace Life's First Love. This is an emotional part of the past uh, sermon for me because I was doing a lot of reflecting because it's been six years since we started. We're, this is a big transition for us. This was my sermon preview this week. Could a church be 100% committed to the gospel? I'm sorry, I had to use a fancy emoji, okay? I'm just I'm trying to get with the times. Could the church be a 100% committed to the gospel and still lose its first love? So you guys know anything about me, you know that I have a passion for good theology and staying true to the scriptures. That's why we don't do any topical series, really. We do chapter by chapter, verse by verse, book by book for a reason. But for the American church as a whole, standing up to today's Nicolaitans, people who destroy others with false teaching, isn't nearly as treacherous as it was for the Ephesians. It doesn't require all that much courage for us to stand up for truth, if we're honest. Maybe a little bit of mocking on social media or some insulting memes that might be as bad as bad as it goes. But we do see many of the same things Ephesus did as culture tries to encroach and infiltrate and pollute what the church believes. It's all over the place. Some of it is not so subtle. Some of it is very hard to spot. I see it from patriotic nationalism to cultural, woke, moral progressivism. All those things corrupt the gospel. Many things seek to become the, first, the church's first love. Right? The world is always trying to tell you, no, if you're a Christian, this is what you should be doing. No, this is what you should believe. No, this is who you should vote for. No, this is what you should vote for. The world is constantly trying to encroach on our first love. Like the church at Ephesus, Grace Life must continue to faithfully stand against all these things by preaching the truth of God's word. But there has to be a delicate balance. I love this verse from John chapter 13. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, the first love, 
first commandment. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. There's the light idea. Everybody will see it if you have love for one another. And it's not just about grace lifers loving grace lifers. It's about grace life, lifers loving other people in the church of Sarasota. Sarasota has one lampstand, then a bunch of little mini like menorah lampstands around it. You know what I'm saying? And we're one of them. <laughs> what the church is, is a gathering of saints, chosen and transformed by Jesus, with qualities given by the Spirit that dwell within us. And we outlined those qualities, did we not, in our study in 2 Peter? It's faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, stability, reverence for God, brotherly affection, and humble love and service for our fellow man. All of these things given to us by the Spirit empower a royal priesthood that is commanded to be active in proclamation and integrity and in industry. That is our first love. And every church will struggle with this first love of the priesthood of proclamation, integrity, and industry. Every church will struggle from time to time, so we need frequent individual and corporate reminders. Sadly, there are many examples of churches just like Ephesus who were faithful theologically but lost their first love. Churches who closed their doors or simply became impotent when it came to impacting lives. There became no love, so therefore there was no light. These are organizations, some of them that were teeming with talented leaders and people and lots of money and resources and great facilities, and they lost their first love. I could name many. Some are mega churches like Mars Hill. Some are smaller churches. Churches who have lost their lampstand. Oh, they still might be around, but nobody really cares. Other things became more important than the royal priesthood. Let me tell you something. If you're a child of God and you're in a church that is not active in proclamation and integrity and industry and everything they do, that church is in danger of losing its lampstand. The people in these churches aren't removed from Jesus' hands, but Jesus has removed the institution's lampstand, ability to be a bright light. Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. You see that? Let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So from the start, Grace Life has done things differently than most churches. We started with no money and no full-time staff and no real building. This is what makes this era so exciting because God has uniquely constructed us in our ethos, in our history, in our foundation. He he's constructed us to be a lampstand in our new neighborhood. You know, several pastors over the last couple of months I didn't reach out to them. They reached out to me personally. Several pastors locally have called to say they're excited that Grace Life is expanding our role in parts of the city they can't reach. 
And I asked these guys if I could mention them by name today. They all said, yes, if you must. <laughs> One example is I had a great, like, 30-minute conversation with Chip Bennett from Grace Community Church this, about two weeks ago. And I was getting ready to hang up. He said, Joe, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, well, sure, Chip. He said, I just want to express you the incredible admiration I have for how Grace Life approaches ministry in ways that Grace Community can't. He began to encourage me about our unique reputation. He said, I don't know if you know, this is your reputation, that Grace Life has one of the deepest theological surf, uh, foundations when it comes to teaching. He said, but you have done something amazing at Grace Life. Your church has combined deep theology with gritty, dirty, in-the-trenches kingdom work, with food pantry, recovery, and counseling, and therapy. Then Nick Williams from South Shore Community Church, which will be about three miles up from us, he called me, said, congratulations on the building. We're really excited about Grace Life. And he talked about the unique things about Grace Life, some of the things that he says he's jealous of. I said, you're jealous of me. Your stage is incredible, Nick. Like, I've seen that thing. Like, I preached there one time. It made me look so skinny. I loved it. <laughs> and Nick said, well, we're excited to have you as a neighbor. We want to commit to providing you real help. So your lampstand, he didn't say lampstand. He just said, we want to provide you real. He said, we want to provide you real help so you can shine bright in that community. Steve McCoy, 360 Church, called me. By the way, Steve McCoy is one of our overseers. If you don't know, there's a group of pastors locally that if any of you or our leadership team had a problem with me and you couldn't resolve it, you call Brian Yost, you call Steve McCoy and a few others, and you explain to him the problem, they meet with, me, meet with me. I've signed a document that says I will submit to whatever they tell me to do, whether it's resign, step back, or keep doing what I'm supposed to. So Steve McCoy at 360, who's one of those overseers, called me. And he said he's never seen a church like Grace Life start with $18,000 in a bar. <laughs> and here's what's great. All these churches, they've said, if you need to borrow chairs, we've got you. If you need to help us, you need us to donate sound or lighting equipment or experts to help you put it in, we got you. If you need volunteers for your food pantry when it gets cranked back up, we got you. They're all on board. Look, this isn't a brag. I honestly want you to hear, this is not a brag. This is like incredibly humble gratitude. God has given Grace Life a beautiful, unique lampstand that others have noticed. But I had some other thoughts recently. See if you can relate to this. This is kind of like, I'm just going to kind of recount to you what's gone through my head. I haven't said it out loud, but I'm just kind of tell you like what the words that go through. Man, after six years of worshiping in a bar slash comedy club, having Grace Life kids in a downtown office building on the third floor with a bathroom 20 yards down the hall, <laughs> doing kingdom work in a strip mall with no parking and combatant neighbors, we have finally arrived. Finally, we have a real church. Wait. And now, finally, Grace Life can have some credibility. Have any of you guys thought that? I know I have. I'm confessing to you. Here's the problem with that. What if Grace Life's new home dampens or completely draws us away from what we've done at the very beginning? Jesus said to the church at Ephesus, go back to what you used to do. You've lost your first love. What if Grace Life's new home dampens that? What if Grace Life becomes a successful organization, but right now would be the peak of our effectiveness in proclamation, integrity, and industry before we move? 
Like what, after we move, what happens if it all is downhill from there, but we get better with maybe a nice building, maybe a little more money, maybe a little more staff, but we stop loving others? What if we lose our first love? If our building becomes more important than the people in our new neighborhood? What if we become less gritty? What if we become less mobile? And yes, we've been thinking about that, and just because we have a building doesn't mean we won't be mobile. What if we become less generous because the building costs a lot of money? What if because of our newfound credibility as a real church, we become less of a lampstand? How tragic would it be in the next six years if the things these other churches and pastors called and said they admire about us are no longer who we are? How tragic would it be if Grace Life, for all of its commitment to being biblical, had its heart grow cold for people? How tragic would it be if one day Jesus has to remove our lampstand and give it to someone else who's willing to be gritty? What if nobody could tell that we are his disciples anymore because we don't love one another like we used to when we first started and all we had was each other? Today, as a church, I would like to lead you in a short time of prayer, asking Heavenly Dad to protect us from this sin. A prayer that will keep our hearts focused on our first love. A love that was mobile, organic, biblical, and generous. A church full of royal priests who are obsessed with proclamation, integrity, and industry over programs, money, and carpet. Heavenly Dad, we are excited about where you're leading our church, the things you have provided, the people, the places. But Lord, as we were reading this passage today and studying it, It occurred to me this week that we really need to be careful here. It would be very easy for these things to encroach on our first love. A church that was nimble and quick to move to meeting the needs of people, even when we didn't have a lot of money. Now, Lord, there's going to be new financial responsibilities and and new responsibilities on our time as you've given us this resource, this one and a half acres in the middle of the city. Lord, I ask that in the hearts of not just the pastor and the shepherds, but all the other leaders and all the other people and all the other worshipers in our little family, church family here, that you would keep us mindful of the fact that we must maintain our first love. We must still, even though we have a centralized location, we must still be mobile. We still must be organic. We're not run by programs. We're run by the needs of people. 
We still need to be biblical. We don't need to compromise our message to be more, quote-unquote, appealing to those around us. We still must be surprisingly generous. Lord, we don't want to compromise our proclamation or our integrity or our industry, but we do know that we will be tempted to. And when it does, I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment. Help us to be sober and we be vigilant because we know our adversary walks about like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. And I pray, Lord, in the next six years, Grace Life won't lose its lance stand, but it will burn bigger and brighter than ever before as we collaborate with other like-minded churches in our community that have expressed love and excitement for us. That, too, is kind of humbling but also rebuking, Lord. Who knows, maybe we are supposed to play a role in the next church like Grace Life that's supposed to start up and doesn't have a place to go. Keep us kingdom-minded. Lord, keep us from falling in love with the institution or the organization and keep our hearts focused on the royal priesthood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's an exciting time. We have a lot of work to do, and it doesn't stop. We're just getting the building ready for worship. We'll see you guys next week for week five of Revelation. Have a great week.